Andrew B. Gray was mad. The Virginia-born surveyor was still upset over the fact that the joint U.S.-Mexican Boundary Commission was dead set on a compromise line for where one nation ended and another began. Even an assignment to survey the Gila River at the end of 1851 that was meant for him to cool his heels hadn't lessened his strenuous objections to the fact that in his mind, the U.S. was being swindled out of thousands of acres of land. Why couldn't the Boundary Commission see what he did? That the land the U.S. Commissioner John Russell Bartlett was just giving away was perfect for a southern all-weather railroad line to link the eastern states with California and the vast new territories ceded to the U.S. at the end of the Mexican-American War. Gray's continual objections were a nightmare for the rest of the commission. As the lead U.S. surveyor, he needed to sign off on the compromise so it could go through. And that wasn't happening. So the commission did the only reasonable thing to do. They fired him. That, they thought, would solve the problem quite nicely. But Gray's shouting had caught the attention of some pretty powerful people whose ears all perked up when they heard the word railroad. Suddenly, the border, which should have been a done deal years ago, was now looking wide open again. In the end, it will be a complex web of topography, business interests, regional factionalism, national politics, and diplomacy that will eventually settle the line for the border. And with it, the final shape of this place we call Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 27, The Gadsden Purchase. To recap, Gray's problem had been this. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which fixed the boundary between the U.S. and Mexico, had used an inaccurate map that showed the Rio Grande more than a hundred miles east of its actual location, and the community of El Paso both north and east of where it really sits. Bartlett and his Mexican counterpart, the now deceased General Pedro Garcia Conde, had decided on their own to draw the boundary line halfway between reality and what the map showed. This gave the Americans more land in Texas, while also giving them the Santa Rita del Cobre copper mines in New Mexico. Mexico would keep the rich Mesilla Valley, and consequently the eastern end of modern Cochise County. Though of course, at this point, no one outside of the never-ending struggle between Mexico and the Apaches had any idea who Cochise was, or that the area would be named after him. Despite the death of Garcia Conde in December 1851, the commission launched into another round of surveying work in the summer of 1852. This time, they headed east from San Diego to finish surveying along the Gila River, which, as you might remember from last week, is what Gray and Whipple were unable to finish because they had run out of supplies and had to beeline it for Fort Yuma. At the beginning of June, Bartlett and the others were at the Colorado River, Historian James Officer throws in here that their attitude was subdued, as just a few days earlier, the head of the commission's military escort had actually been killed by a pair of army deserters. 
Whipple crossed the river and began his work on July 11th, with Bartlett not getting started for another week. Here again we get comments about him taking a leisurely pace, seemingly more interested in exploring the countryside and visiting with the Odom and Maricopas than in actually doing his surveying work. This slow amble, plus a divergent trip south for Bartlett, meant he and his entourage arrived at Tucson on July 16, 1852. This is the visit we briefly touched on a couple episodes back, where Bartlett sketched the buildings and also wrote about what horrible wretches the Tucson residents were. You know, all the usual, more than slightly racist stuff Americans said when going through Mexico. A few days later, the party rode into Tubac, where Bartlett, to both his joy and horror, found Ines Gonzalez, the girl he had freed from captivity the previous year. It was a joyous reunion because, hey, she's still alive and doing pretty well. But Bartlett was deeply hurt to find the teenager living with the new commander of the Tubac military colony, Captain Bernabe Gomez. The two were, of course, unmarried, which offended all of Bartlett's morals. He also apparently wasn't fond of the way Gomez treated her, and would spend the next several days trying any which way to free her of what he considered the captain's lecherous grasp. Bartlett even wrote to the nearest religious authority, Father Bernardino Pacheco in Santa Cruz, and to the governor of Sonora to somehow separate the pair. In the end, however, his efforts came to naught, and he had to keep going with his actual job, shaking his head that Ines was now living in sin. In reality, however, things were actually looking pretty good for her. Gomez was a respected young officer with a bright future. The two would later marry and have two sons together. Officer also points out that a year beforehand, Ines had almost certainly been the wife of an Apache, which would have been way more uncomfortable, perhaps even deadly, than her current living arrangement. But while Bartlett was worrying about Ines's soul, and the rest of his company was doing the actual surveying work, I guess, the line that he and Garcia Conde had drawn the previous year was starting to unravel. In August 1852, the pro-Southern governor of the New Mexico Territory, William Carr Lane, jumped into the fray. Despite having just arrived at his post, seriously, we are talking only a matter of months, if that, Lane decided that New Mexico should claim the rich Mesilla Valley while the Boundary Commission was still talking about where the actual line should be. He threatened to take the valley by force if necessary, which naturally drew a response from Angel Trias, the governor of Chihuahua, who began mustering troops to repel any such invasion. Fallout war was only avoided when the U.S. military commander in New Mexico, who appears to have been at loggerheads with Lane, declined to back up the governor's strong talk. That same month, however, the issue was being deliberated somewhere far from New Mexico. The U.S. Senate's Foreign Relations Committee met to discuss the current state of the survey in Gray's repeated shoutings that Bartlett was giving away the store. Ultimately, they decided that he had strayed from the treaty's original intent and that the Bartlett-Conde line simply would not be accepted. The decision brought the progress, such as it was, of the Boundary Commission to a screeching halt. 
It's important here to recognize that the commission was not working in a vacuum. Maybe under different circumstances, the compromise line would have been looked on favorably as a prudent move. But as it was, the issue was quickly becoming meshed into the national politics of the day. As I've mentioned several times now, the key consideration here was the railroad. Finding an all-weather southern route to California, where snow and ice on the track would not be an issue, was of the utmost importance to many in Congress. William H. Emery, a surveyor who had been with Kearney's expedition during the Mexican-American War and has also been in the background as part of the Boundary Commission, wrote, quote, Beyond all question, a practical and, indeed, highly advantageous railroad route from the upper basin of the Rio Bravo to the valley of the Gila exists through the new territory. At no point on the line of survey, high elevations exceed 4,000 feet. End quote. It was also pointed out that if the border was fixed at where Bartlett and Garcia Conde had it, the important Cook Wagon Road and parts of the Gila Trail would remain in New Mexico. The line established by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, he wrote, quote, cut off entirely the communication by wagon between the two rivers, leaving out of view the consideration involved in securing a railroad route to the Pacific. It was a line which, sooner or later, must have been abandoned. No traveler could pass nor dispatch be sent from a military post on the Rio Bravo to one on the Gila without passing through Mexican territory. End quote. The Southern Railroad Line was important for another reason as well. Remember that this is the 1850s. The nation is deeply divided between North and South as hostilities ramp up toward the Civil War. We are just a couple years removed from the Compromise of 1850. If it's been a few years since your junior high American history class, remember the Compromise of 1850 was a series of bills to keep everything in balance, including the admission of California as a free state, the establishment of the territories of Utah and New Mexico, and the passage of a stronger fugitive slave law. So a lot of Southerners were more than a little interested in a railroad between the Southern states and California, which could only strengthen them economically and politically for when the showdown with those darn Northern Yankees finally happened. The Southern economy would also be greatly enhanced if the rumors of that fabulously wealthy silver mine in that one place, what was it called again? Arizona? Turned out to be true. With all this swirling around, in May 1853, newly elected President Franklin Pierce heeded the advice of his Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, to see if they could possibly get some more land from Mexico. Pierce tapped James Gadsden, a railroad speculator from South Carolina, as his minister to Mexico to try and purchase the disputed areas. Gadsden arrived in the country with authorization to offer up to $50 million for most of northern Mexico, including Baja California, Sonora, Chihuahua, and Coahuila. Obviously, this offer was rejected by the Mexican dictator, our old friend making yet another cameo appearance, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Mexico wanted to keep Baja California and... If it did, they wanted to have a land route to access it. 
also the ill-time invasion of Mexico by American land pirate William Walker, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, raised enough popular ire that the Mexican government couldn't even think about conceding that much territory. Gadsden was finally talked down to a $10 million offer to secure the Mesilla Valley with its all-important railroad potential and the swath of land that today makes up Arizona south of the Gila River. That's just shy of one quarter of the entire state today, I should add. Mexico would keep Baja California and its land route, with the U.S. border moving south along the Colorado River 20 miles from its confluence with the Gila. As part of these negotiations, Gadsden also managed to strike down Article 11 of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which had said that the U.S. would stop all raiding natives from moving into Mexico. It had only taken five years for the Americans to learn what an impossible task that was. The treaty was signed by representatives on both sides on December 30, 1853. It went through the approval process in both countries until it was proclaimed six months later on June 30, 1854. From a value standpoint, Mexico got a pretty good deal here. Remember that just five years earlier, they had received $15 million for 525,000 square miles of land. Now, they had just been paid $10 million for a little more than half that. Unfortunately, many in Mexico weren't in the mood to hear what a great deal the government had just made. Santa Ana had rightly known that he couldn't give away huge swaths of Mexico again, but it had allowed the Gaston purchase out of fears that the U.S. might just come and take what it wanted if he had refused to negotiate. Unfortunately, this was all the ammunition his political enemies needed to strike again. Mexican pride, still very much wounded after the recent war, was hurt again by Santa Ana giving away even more. A liberal coup deposed Santa Ana in 1855 and sent him into exile. He will eventually return to Mexico in 1874, but as an old man who died two years later. Gee, Santa Ana, sorry to hear that, but I guess we should say thanks for giving us Tucson. It's always nice to get a gift from an old friend. Of course, one of the great ironies of the Gadsden Purchase is that, due to the growing conflict between North and South, the highly anticipated railroad would not be built until well after the Civil War, when its original raison d'etre was now moot. The good news, at least, is that the surveyors could now get back to work, though a lot of what they had accomplished was now null and void. This is also the point where Bartlett is out as the U.S. Commissioner. It's partly because of his agreeing to the original compromise line, but also partly because he had been appointed by a Whig president, and now Democrat Franklin Pierce was in the White House. I wouldn't feel too badly for him, though. Remember how people kept remarking that he was more interested in writing about what he saw than actually doing his work? Well, in 1854, he published a two-volume memoir of his experience in the Southwest, which contained a number of valuable insights and scientific details. Plus, he would go on to be the Secretary of State for his native Rhode Island, so all in all, not too shabby. To replace him, Pierce elevated William H. Emery, 
who would have the honor of being the only U.S. commissioner that actually had a surveying background. He also had been with Kearney and the Boundary Commission for years now, so he actually knew about the territory he was getting into. That didn't make the surveying work any easier, but at least we now have a commissioner who both knows what to expect and what he is doing. I've also seen it that Emery had been forced by Bartlett to accept the compromise line against his own judgment, so this appointment could be seen as sweet justice. In December 1854, the commission gathered again at El Paso, this time marking its actual location as the starting point of their survey. I will also add that Emery's Mexican counterpart was Jose Salazar Ilarregui, who had served as the chief surveyor for Garcia Conde when the commission first got going more than five years beforehand. By January 31, 1855, the first of the new border markers was set up in El Paso. Just a few days after Emery and his party got started heading west, another branch of the commission was setting up at Fort Yuma to start surveying the line east. This group was led by Lieutenant Nathaniel Mitchler, who had the duty to determine the boundary starting at the Colorado River, 20 miles south of its junction with the Gila. Early state historian James H. McClintock writes that his work was hampered when the spring came and rains caused the Colorado River to widen considerably in its channel. Soon water became an issue in the exact opposite way as the party struck southeast. The nearest source of water was 45 miles away from the Colorado at a location known as Tinajas Altas, or high tanks, in the mountains of the same name. The steep gullies on the eastern side of these mountains had natural wells that filled up with rainwater, hence their name. These were well known to the Spanish, and if you want to throw back more than a dozen episodes, Anza stopped here during his first expedition toward California way back in 1775. Mitchler wrote, quote, There are eight of these Tanajas, one above the other, the highest two extremely difficult to reach. As water is used from the lower one, you ascend to the next higher, passing it down by means of buckets. It is dangerous to attempt the highest, as it requires a skilled climber to ascend the mountain, which is of granite origin, the rock smooth and slippery. End quote. Another leg of this journey required a 125-mile stretch without water. In his final report, Emery says that Mitchler's party once only went 17 miles over the course of three days because, quote, massive rocks and steep precipices constantly impeded the progress of and turned the party from its course, making the route circuitous as well as hazardous. Rough ascents were surmounted, Steep ravines followed down, and deep gullies passed. The mules had actually to be dragged along. End quote. A lack of water caused the party to abandon this line in May 1855 and head to the Santa Cruz Valley. Mitchler would leave us some interesting tidbits from this excursion, such as remarking that Tubac by this point had been abandoned yet again. He says, quote, while Apaches lorded over this region, and the timid husbandman dared not return to his home, the mission of Tumacockery, another fine structure of the Mother Church, stand in the midst of rich fields, but fear prevents its habitation, 
save by two or three Germans who have wandered from their distant fatherland to this out-of-the-way country. End quote. These Germans are no doubt the same that Manuel Maria Gandra had hired to watch over his sheep operation at Calabasas. The lieutenant also mentions Sonoida, the Mexican settlement of that name that sits just across the border from today's Lukeville. This, he says, was the door to the state of Sonora, but was a resort for smugglers and other Americans who had fled from justice. It, he said, was, quote, a miserable, poverty-stricken place. It contrasts sharply with the comparative comfort of an Indian village of Papagos within sight, end quote. Now, if you are like me and have always wondered why the bottom of Arizona takes that sharp 45-degree turn just west of Nogales, I'm afraid I have an answer, but not an interesting one. That's just how it's written in the Gadsden Purchase. Seriously. At the 111th meridian, the boundary is supposed to go in a straight line until it connects with a point on the Colorado 20 miles below the river's junction with the Gila. Also, Mexico could keep its land route to Baja, California. Boring, right? State historian Marshall Trimble relays that for years, legends circulated around that Arizona was supposed to have had a seaport on the Gulf of California. According to these legends, those surveying the line got to Nogales, then realized that the nearest saloon wouldn't be until Yuma, so they made a beeline up that way. To quote Trimble, that makes a good story, but it ain't true. Emery and Ilaregi met up with Mitchell and his men in Nogales after surveying the boundary west from El Paso. His written record makes mention of the San Simon, San Pedro, and Santa Cruz rivers, as well as the old ranches that had been abandoned along the San Pedro a couple decades earlier. Emery wrote that they saw, quote, the remains of large settlements, which had been destroyed by the hostile Indians, the most conspicuous of which are the mining town of San Pedro and the town of Santa Cruz Viejo. There are also to be found herein the remains of spacious corrals and in the numerous wild cattle and horses, which still are seen in this country, the evidence of its immense capacity as a grazing country. End quote. McClintock writes that while Emery was in Nogales, he was part of a conference of sorts with many of the native leaders who came to discuss the role the U.S. would now play and how it compared to what the natives had experienced with Mexican rule. One of the leaders who came to this conference in late June 1855 was Chief Antonio Azul of the Gila River Acamel Odom. Azul has actually been in the background through a lot of everything we discussed during the past few months. I name-checked him in episode 19, shortly after the Mexicans signed a peace treaty with the Banal Apache way back in 1836. He and his people were also some of those who were persuaded to not rebel by Captain Comodoran's diplomacy during the Papago War. So he's been around a while and has seen quite a bit. Emery supposedly told Azul and others, according to McClintock at least, that the U.S. was coming to take over for the Mexicans, and until then, they should continue to cooperate with Mexican authorities. He also said, and you can just feel the historical irony here, that all good American citizens were called upon to respect the authority of Azul and other native leaders. 
Overall, Emery was impressed by the Odom, Kokopas, and Maricopas. He wrote, quote, They have undoubtedly a just claim to the land, and if dispossessed, will make war on the frontier of a very serious character. I hope the subject will soon attract the attention of Congress, as it has done that of the executive, and that some legislation will be effected, securing these people in their rights. They have always been kind and hospitable to immigrants passing from the old United States to California, supplying them freely and at moderate prices with wheat, corn, melons, and cotton blankets of their own manufacture. End quote. Good and admiring words. Too bad no one really listened to them. Dealings with the other great native group, the Apache, seems to have been limited, though their presence was definitely known. Emery would boast that the U.S. Commission evaded all native attacks, but their Mexican counterparts had not been so lucky. Our co-operators on the Mexican Commission, he wrote, were twice robbed of every hoof by the Apaches, and extensive losses were sustained by other detachments of United States troops and by our citizens traversing the region. Thanks to the fact that both sides actually had real surveyors in charge for the first time in five years, the Boundary Commission was able to essentially wrap up the actual surveying process in October 1855, less than a year after getting started. The line they surveyed is the same you'll see today, running between El Paso and the Pacific Ocean. Only the portion between San Diego and the Colorado River was left over from the original survey starting back in 1849 by Garcia Conde and Weller. But hey, given all the problems they had, at least they ended up contributing something to the final product. Ila Regi wrote at this time, quote, The line was completely surveyed, marked and fixed in all its length. End quote. The gang would have to get back together early in 1856 to finalize all their maps, but the true hard work was done. In 1857, Emery would publish a two-volume report of the Boundary Commission containing not only the surveying, but also his own notes on the geography of the region, as well as scientific sketches of the plants, animals, and natives who inhabited it. Much like Bartlett before him, Emery's writings would serve as a major treatise on the Southwest during the era. He will go on to fight in the Civil War, serving in the Army of the Potomac and in the Shenandoah Valley Campaign, eventually ending his service as a major general in 1866. And because I like Minutia, his fame was such that his name has been appended to a lot of things over the years, including a mountain pass in New Mexico, a peak in Texas, and to Fort Emory in California, used to train special forces. He's also the namesake for the scientific names of the Great Plains Rat Snake, the Texas Spiny Soft-Shelled Turtle, a type of thorn shrub, and not one, but two types of cacti. Also, just for good measure, Apollo 17 astronauts named a small crater on the moon for him. Not too bad a legacy, if you ask me. In total, the U.S. was of two minds about all the territory that had fallen in its lap during the past decade. On one hand, the route to California and the Southern Railroad route, with all the enticing prospects of gold and silver, were alluring and promised economic advancement, the very fulfillment of Manifest Destiny. 
On the other, people had serious doubts about the worth of the former Mexican lands in general and the Gadsden Purchase in particular. It was being described back east at the time as a desert so barren that even a wolf couldn't survive there. The always gruff General William Tecumseh Sherman is said to have quipped, quote, We had one war with Mexico to take Arizona, and we should have another to make her take it back. End quote. State historian Thomas Sheridan writes that, with the stroke of a pen, the extreme edge of what had once been the Spanish Empire was suddenly brought into the U.S. as almost an afterthought. After nearly a century of their seesaw for survival, Tucson, Tubac, and Tumacacri were now American holdings. The government of the United States had no great desire to acquire the settlements of the Santa Cruz, Sheridan writes. They just happened to be there, a handful of adobe communities lying along the route for an all-weather railroad. Also, we should keep in mind that though Emery and Ilaregui had finalized the line on a map between their respective countries, it had not actually changed that much. As historian Rachel St. John points out in Line in the Sand, her book about the western border, the final surveying had remade maps, but hadn't changed the balance of power in the borderlands. The struggle for that power, among Mexicans, enterprising Americans, criminals, revolutionaries, and, above all else, Native Americans, will go on for decades yet to come. The line was complete, she writes, but what it would mean remained to be seen. So join me next week as we take a close look at what the new line would mean for those living in the area. We'll follow up with Tucson during the last years of Mexican rule and watch as they prepare either to hand the colony over and head down south or stay and face an unknown future under U.S. rule. All the while, the Yankees moving quickly to discover exactly what they had just purchased. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.